Uh, we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 7. So as you're flipping your pages there, if you haven't got there already, uh, in the first seven verses, we, we had uh, Jesus is, is out ministering, and John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask the question, are you the one or do we keep looking? And uh, Jesus' answer, of course, is the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, figure it out, right? The answer to the prophecy. And so, um, this is the plight of the Jews, not just in Jesus' time, but this is the plight of the Jews today. Was he the one or do we keep looking? And the vast majority of them have kept looking and they missed it. Uh, and so as we look at our passage this week, we're going to see Jesus specifically talking about this short-sightedness that they have, this inability that they had to see who he was. So now I'm going to ask everybody to stand as we normally do for the reading of the word this morning. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray. Father, once again I ask as we approach your word this morning that we would have our eyes open, <clears throat> that we would have ears to hear the word as it is written, that we would see how Jesus' words about his generation can apply to our generation today. Father, I pray that we would be willing to hear what you have to ta say to us today. And I pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So, <clears throat> after Jesus gave his answer to John's disciples, they took off to take the message to John, and Jesus started to talk to the crowds. Now, you have to remember when Jesus is talking to the crowds, it's not just the average, everyday Jewish citizen. There are also scribes and Pharisees, and Sadducees, and Levites, and priests, and, and there are other people who are here in the crowd. 
And this time what he's talking about, since John is fresh on his mind because of the question that was asked, he's talking about John. At least that's where he starts. Now John was his cousin, and it would be natural for us to expect that Jesus would say good things about his cousin, even though the two of them didn't really grow up together, at least not that we know of. Uh, it, we would expect that Jesus would say good things about John and his character and who he is. Um, but he doesn't really talk about the character of John, his cousin. He talks about the character of John, the prophet. And so he starts by asking the crowds, what did you expect to find when you went out into the Judean wilderness? When John appears on the, on the scene, if you remember at the beginning of the book of Matthew, we're told that that John shows up, and he is dressed as a prophet. He's wearing a camel hair garment. Uh, he's got bits of bugs and wild honey in his beard, and he's he's not what you know. He, he's not dressed like a modern preacher. He's dressed like a prophet. And so Jesus says, "What did you expect to see when you went out to see?" John, when you went out to the Judean wilderness and he's at the banks of the Jordan River and he's yelling out at people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what did you expect? Did you expect to see a reed that was shaken by the wind? Now Jesus here is talking about somebody who is preaching or prophesying on their own. Somebody who is going to respond to popular opinion. Somebody who's going to be swayed by whatever the winds of doctrine are for today. Jesus said, is that what you expect? Then he asked the question, (laughs) did you go to see a man in soft clothes? Did you go to see a priest or a Levite who was uh, a a puffed up house cleric uh, beholden to the Lord of the manor who wouldn't dare to preach a message that goes against what his employer wants to hear? Now see, in the first case, if it's a if it's a, a wind shake a reed rather shaken by the wind, that kind of man who would he wouldn't have the wherewithal to stand and preach. Because remember, the people who came out to him that John was talking to were the Pharisees, the religious elite. And they came out and they said, What are you, what are you commanding the Jewish people to repent? We don't need to repent and be baptized, that's for Gentiles. And John answers them. See, if it was a reed shaken by the wind, he wouldn't have had the guts to do that. He probably would, well, yeah, you're right, and he would have gone back into the woods. If it was a soft man, a person in soft clothes and puffed up and rich and wealthy, he's he's looking at like a Sadducee. The Sadducees were rich, and they had pretty much denied everything supernatural because it didn't line up with what the rulers of the land had to say. The Romans, see, the the Jewish beliefs didn't really line up with the Roman government, so they kind of pushed it aside. And, And that's not who the people would have gone to see. Then he says, did you go to see a prophet? Well, the answer is yes. The unspoken emphasis here would probably be something along these lines. Did you go to see a prophet of the Most High God? Did you go to see a prophet who's going to preach what God has said? See, 
John painted the exact picture of an Old Testament prophet from the way he walked, the way he talked, the way he dressed, the way he ate. That was a picture of a prophet. And the things that he said lined up with the prophets of old. If you remember Ezekiel, and you remember Isaiah, and you remember Hosea, and the rest of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel and and, um, Malachi, and all of these... Their call to the people of Israel was, repent, turn away from the stuff that you're doing. And that's what John came out to say. He was a prophetic voice after 400 years of no prophetic voice. And the people responded to him. Now, Jesus says he's more than a prophet. He is the one who was prophesied about. In verse 10 there, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That is a quote from the book of Malachi, chapter 3. If you want to flip there real quick. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So it's just a quick left turn. And I'll be honest with you, if you pay attention during the offering... Malachi chapter 3 might be a little bit uh, familiar because the slide that's up there on the screen during the offering is Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Let me, let me read this here with a little bit of context. In chapter 2 of Malachi, if you, if you flip back and you look <clears throat> at chapter 2, what... Malachi is prophesying against, what God is speaking against, are the priests because of their corrupted teaching. The priests, now, they're not alone in this. Part of the problem has been that the people quit making their sacrifices the way God commanded them to. So the priests and the Levites had to go out and work for a living, which means they had to give up some of their study of the Word. They had to give up some of their emphasis on the ministry that God had called them to. And so they strayed a little bit. And then you had the political rulers, the kings and and ruling families who brought in their own pagan deities that they kind of integrated in and and slid into Israel's worship. And the priests being tied up with trying to feed their families and stuff didn't have time to fight against it. They didn't have the energy to fight against it. And so they just accepted it. They said, okay, fine, we're good with it. And so God prophesies through Malachi here against them. The priests and the Levites had been essentially prostituting themselves to the highest bidder, whatever would put food on the table. Isn't it ironic that the people that John speaks to on the banks of the Jordan River, and he calls them uh, a, a brood of vipers, that it's the religious leaders in Israel that he speaks that way to? And if you think about the people that Jesus had the harshest words for, It's the religious leaders in Israel. See, that's what chapter 2 of Malachi starts with. And then the second part of that talks about the people of Judah profaning the covenant with God. They had been unfaithful. They had brought in the foreign gods. They intermarried with families who did not convert. They didn't follow God's law. And so God pronounces a curse on the people of Judah. Where did John show up baptizing? on the banks of the Jordan River, in the Judean wilderness, in Judah. 
How about that? It's almost like God knew what he was doing. He puts the same prophetic message in the same place, in the same way, to call the people of Judah to repent. And then we move over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, in response to these curses, uh, actually, let me read verses... uh, Let me read verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Let's pause for a second, because that sounds awful familiar. The people of Israel had gotten to the point where they said that sin was okay. The people of Israel had gotten to the point where they said, it's not a big deal if you violate God's law. Not only that, but they said that people who did that were still blessed by God and that God delights in them, that God loves you no matter what you do. I got a news flash for you. You need to listen. You need to hear this. God loves people just as they are, but when he calls us to him, He calls us to repent and to change. He doesn't want us to stay in the mud. He wants us to grow and to get out of it. And the people of Israel had missed that. Now, here's the second thing. The people of Israel had said, where is the God of justice? Where is the God who's bringing judgment? He's dragging his feet, therefore, he's fake. And so... Here's God's response in chapter 3 of Malachi. I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant and who you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now here's where we get to the passage that we have up on the board during offering. Starting with verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field should not fail to bear." Then all nations will call you blessed, for you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what God is saying here is, turn back. Do what I told you to in the first place, and you will be blessed. Turn away from the things that I told you not to do, 
But he starts it by saying there's going to come a messenger, and that's John. A messenger to introduce the king to his people. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then I will come to the temple and I will straighten things out. This is like mom telling the kids, wait till your father gets home. Okay? In Malachi 3, he says that this is not something the unrighteous are going to look forward to. He is likened to a refining fire and a fuller's soap. Now, most of you probably have heard that whole phrase about a refining fire. If you are metalworking, if you have gold or if you have silver or if you have iron, you run the ore through a heating process and you heat it up until it melts and then the, the, the junk, the dross, the, the waste, the impurities will float to the top and you can skim them off and then you heat it again and you skim the impurities off and then you heat it again and the more you skim off the top of it, the more pure it is. A refining fire, that's an easy one for us to grab a hold of. Now, I have to ask you the question, though, what is a fuller? Anybody know? I had to go look it up. It is a cleaner. Specifically, it is a cleaner of wool. A fuller was a person who was responsible for cleansing wool after it had been shorn from the sheep. And the way they do this at least the way they used to do this back in in the time where this was being written, a fuller would take that sheep, uh, that, that wool rather, that sheep fiber, right? And they would put it in a vat of human waste and they would stomp on it with their feet. And the, specifically, it was liquid waste, would... Uh, caused the impurities in the wool to separate and come to the top where it could be then cleaned off. But they stomped on this in a vat, right? Okay? So that was what they did. And the soap that was developed was to replace that because let's just agree, quite frankly, that's nasty. So they developed a soap, an acid, that was designed to remove those impurities and make them float to the top. And so the fuller, a fuller soap, was to remove the discoloration and the impurities in the wool before they could mill it and weave it together into a garment. Again, this is another one of those processes where Jesus is telling us, God is telling us, Malachi is telling us that when God shows up, it is not going to be a time of, yay, everything's all good. It's going to be a time of God saying, We're going to get rid of all the stuff that's bad. We're going to purify it. We're going to cleanse it. We're going to clean it. And it's not going to be a pleasant process. Which one of us would like to be that chunk of iron ore that gets put into the furnace? Or that chunk of gold ore that gets put into that refining fire so that God can skim all of the nasty stuff off the top? Yeah, at the end, that gold is going to look beautiful. But during the process, it's going to be uncomfortable. Which of us would want to be that raw wool that's full of... Have you ever seen sheep? They're not clean animals, okay? And the wool is thick and matted, and it gets clumped with stuff, right? So getting that stuff out is a process that requires 
lots and lots of effort and pounding and chemicals to cleanse it. That's what God's going to do to His people with all of those impurities, with all of that sin that we have. It was this that John was sent to announce. Makes us look much less forward to the day of the coming of the Lord, doesn't it? At least in our flesh. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to have to go through that cleansing process. I don't know about you, but I'm going to have to. So, the importance of this announcement, this prophecy, cannot be understated. This is all because God's people have left God's path. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here. Malachi was about 400 years before Jesus, okay? Because it was the last prophetic statement against the people of Israel before that 400-year gap of silence. At the time that Malachi spoke, people were not bringing their tithe into the temple. They were not taking care of the orphans and the widows and the foreigners, those who had no means of support. They were not taking care of the priests. The priests were not preaching the message that God had for them to preach. They were killing prophets Anybody who dared come with a word of God's prophecy would be put to death because nobody wanted to hear that, okay? Now, God goes silent for 400 years, and then John shows up with the same message. Why? Because the same stuff's still happening. The same kind of behavior is still going on. The people aren't bringing their tithes into the temple. What they are bringing is not an acceptable offering to God. The the priests have have polluted the gospel, have polluted the message with what's popular for the Romans. The people are being oppressed. The people are being pushed down by the Romans. They're being taxed. And the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees walk around like this. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They don't minister to people at all. They just pile on rule after rule after rule after rule. The Sadducees, who have the ability to minister, are too worried chasing a buck. And so the people are left wandering. Jesus called them sheep without a shepherd back in chapter 10. Right? So all of this is still going on, and John comes on the scene to prophesy against it. Now, hit the pause button again, only this time hit fast forward to the year 2017. And I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, going to say that the church in the United States is the equivalent of first century Israel. I'm going to say the church in the world is part of Israel. And throughout the church, all over the place, we have people who are taking the gospel, and they're perverting it, who are taking the offerings and using them for their own gain, who are giving a message that tickles people's ears, who have abandoned the preaching of the truth, huh, I wouldn't want to be the recipient of that prophecy today. We need to be careful where we're at. Now Jesus, going back to to Matthew chapter 11 here, Jesus says that John is the Elijah who was to come. He's not saying that he is the reincarnated Elijah. That's not how God does things. You get one time around, that's it. Okay, you're not stuck on a Ferris wheel of life. 
But John was to come in the spirit of Elijah. He had the Holy Spirit from his conception. He had the prophecy, the, the same giftedness that Elijah had. And Jesus says there hasn't been a man born who is greater than John the Baptist. He is that important to the message that God has. Now, <clears throat> then Jesus says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. How? Because John had the Holy Spirit, but he did not yet see the fullness of the gospel. Because Jesus hadn't died yet. The least in the kingdom has received more revelation, more prophecy, more knowledge of God than any prophet of the Old Testament. We have the full canon of Scripture before us. We can read from Genesis to Revelation. We have everything. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with us. This doesn't minimize John, but it speaks about the gospel for those of us on this side of the cross. It also speaks about the importance of us doing what Jesus told us to do. Love people. Make disciples. What a novel idea. Jesus also makes the statement here that uh, in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. There's a lot of... Uh, if you go down to, to Lifeway or, or another Christian bookstore and you grab... Ten different commentaries on this passage, you're probably going to find at least five different interpretations of what Jesus is talking about. There's a lot of question about this, right? Jesus says that the kingdom has suffered violence. There are a couple of things going on. Number one, you have the religious leaders in Israel. And what are they doing to God's kingdom? What are they doing to God's people? What are they doing to the message of the kingdom? They're mangling it. They're tearing it apart. They're oppressing the people. They're putting them through all kinds of stuff. They are doing violence <clears throat> to the kingdom. The violent who are trying to take it by force. That Herod. Herod heard a message from a prophet that he didn't want to hear. And so what did he do? Put the prophet in jail. Eventually had him beheaded. So it's that same idea there that... The, the kingdom of God is having violence done to it because of the perversion of God's word. Well, we need to be careful that when we study God's word, we're doing it with a desire to hear what God has to say, not what I want to hear. Now then Jesus makes this statement, and if anything talks to the world that we live in today, it is this. Look at verse uh, 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you don't have an impediment to hearing this message, then you better listen. Okay? If you have the ability to hear this, you need to hear this. What I have to say is important. And then he lets them have it. What shall I compare this generation to? A bunch of children calling out to their friends you got a bunch of kids sitting in the marketplace, sitting in the square, sitting in the park, and they're calling out to their friends, we played a song for you, but you didn't come and dance. And then apparently these same kids are bipolar or something because we played a dirge and you didn't mourn. In other words, 
They're not happy no matter what God sends. They're not happy because the world isn't dancing to their tune. They're not happy with the messengers that God sent because the messenger is not saying what they want to hear. See, Jesus gives a parallelism. In verse 18, he says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John came as a prophet. He was dressed as a prophet. He ate like a prophet. He spoke like a prophet. He smelled like a prophet. He was a prophet. He didn't come out feasting. He didn't come out having a a big dinner with the scribes and the Pharisees and commending them for their holiness and their knowledge. He didn't come out to the Sadducees and the the Roman authorities and, and pat them on the back for their justice and their mercy. He came out and he told everybody, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And nobody wanted to hear it. Because the people wanted you to dance along to a joyful song. That's not what God's prophet's going to do. So they rejected him. They said he had a demon. They called him crazy, eccentric, weird. The rulers of the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priests, they rejected the message of repentance. They came down to the river to see what John was saying, and they condemned him for it. We're Jews. We don't have to repent. We don't need to be baptized. You brood of vipers. Right? Then Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up, and he ate with the people. He drank with the people. He went out to dinner, and he he sat, and he ministered to folks. And how did the people respond? They called him a glutton and a drunk. Because he associated with people who needed God's grace and mercy. Let's face it. No matter who God sends to his people, they will reject the message and the messenger. (coughs) Because it's diametrically opposed to what our flesh wants to hear. If it's God's word... Man's flesh doesn't want to hear it. If it's God's word, we're going to fight against it. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that our natural state is at enmity with God. We are not friends of God. We are his enemies. It's, there is no neutral when it comes to God. Okay? There is no Switzerland when it comes to whether we're for God or against God. We can't sit on the fence. We cannot say, well, I don't care one way or the other, because that's not how we're made. We are either for God or not. And if we're not, then we're against Him. We're opposed to Him. We are His enemies. Only. No choice. No two directions about it. In our natural state, We are not neutral towards God. We are opposed. We are at war. So, when Jesus showed up, he wasn't surprised that everybody was opposed to him. John wasn't surprised that everybody was opposed to him. When we speak of spiritual things, the last thing we should be is surprised Because natural man doesn't want to hear our message. Neither did we. This should be expected. Because they want 
somebody who's going to dance to their tune. They want somebody who's going to preach a message they want to hear. There is a reason that works-based religions are so popular. They are so popular because they put me in control of my destiny. There is a reason that the prosperity messages are so popular. It's because they put me in charge of my destiny. But the true gospel, the true word of God says, God's in charge of my destiny. And I need to trust in him. And that's the message we need to take out to the world. So as we prepare to go out this week, as we get ready to depart, as we get ready to go and to talk to people, we need to be in prayer. Number one, I'm giving you all a list of things you need to pray for, okay? (laughs) Number one, pray that God will change your attitude towards sharing with people. That He will change your heart to see people the way He sees them. As people who are desperate for grace and mercy. As people who are made in His image, who need to hear the gospel. That's the first thing we need to pray for. The second thing we need to pray for is that God will go before us. Now, having grown up on a farm, I understand the process of planting crops. Okay? The first thing that has to happen when you plant crops is that the field has to be plowed. You cannot go out into an area that is unplowed and plant crops and expect to have a great harvest because the grass and the weeds and the wildflowers and everything else that's already there will choke out whatever seed you plant. So we need to be in prayer that God will go before and plow that ground. The parable of the sower is the parable of somebody who goes out and sows the seed where the ground has been plowed. Okay? So we need to pray that God will change those hearts, that He will give that new birth So that when we share the gospel with people, not if, when, when we share the gospel with people, they will already be prepared to hear it and to accept it. And then the third thing that you need to pray for is the discernment to be able to tell when somebody is not. Because it's possible that there's people that you run into that God hasn't prepared to hear the gospel. And that doesn't mean you don't share, but that means that you need to be ready for them to say no thanks. And at that point, you can walk away. Not get into an argument, not get into a battle, not get into a fight, and try to convince them that they have to listen. Because the only one who can change that heart is God. So that's what I want us to pray for as we get ready to depart today. 